the Bolognese podcast, where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition. Today's guest is Devin Borman of Academy Duel. Hey, doing well. Good to see you. Hey, Devin. Great to have you back on. Hey, good to see you, Steven. All right. So, um, Devin, we we brought you on for our episode today uh, because we wanted to talk to you about Sword and Small Buckler. Um, One of the core quintessential pieces of the Bolognese system. So we wanted to... We knew that you were the man to talk to here, um, especially after your demonstration at Western Martial Arts Weekend, which... um, we can link a video too, because or the uh, Bolognese weekend. It was, it was that right? It was the Bolognese weekend. that I did the the assault. Yeah, for what, you, what I'm talking about Western Martial Arts Workshop. It was the, um, uh, it was the, uh, uh, what did they call that? I can't. I think remember. It was they a night it, at the Opera Nova. Oh, that's right, night at the Opera Nova. That's right. But yeah. an appropriate title, right? Because yeah. you know, you just fit in anywhere with that one. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, obviously, despite your being a fantastic teacher, um, an instructor, and sort of a world-renowned instructor. Um, you're also an awesome sword and small buckler person, and uh, so you fit perfectly with this material. So um, do you want to get into the first question there, Stephen? Yeah, that sounds like a great idea, Joshua. All right, Devin, how do you see the sword and small buckler material fitting into the Bolognese system of fencing? Um, well, certainly we see, you know, it's it, like I think we have to think about each of these different masters that we put into the Bolognese umbrella mm-hmm. um, uh, as their, I think to a degree, as their own separate people as well, and that each of them has, you know, Moroso definitely is, you know, leads very forward with the sword and uh, Buckler and Manchilino as well. Um, but um, Dallagocchier, um, uh, you know, less so, more of a, and, and even Manchilino a little less so than, than Moroso or um or the anonymo so but i think obviously we see in that time there is um sword and small buckler seems to be a very um central weapon to the class of people that they're teaching and um uh, and that they fit into um so i think one thing that's interesting you know i was chatting with marco quarta about bologna now and he says it's still pretty common for people to have a stick and buckler in their house just for self-defense yeah, we've been um, trying to reach out to towns him. Really? We've been trying yeah, to reach out to Marco to talk to him about this. And so I thought really that was a really yeah. interesting thing to hear about. And that, that was something pretty common for a long period wow. of time. That a small, you know, having a small shield. And you think of it from a utility perspective. Um, that, you know, a little little shield makes a sword a lot more safe yeah. at the very least. Yeah. Also, I think, you know, obviously this isn't, isn't the case for the Bolognese as far as skill. But... Um, you know, one thing of having a shield is it does mean that you, from a, just a utility perspective, you don't necessarily need to be as skilled as you do with just a stick or right. just a sword. Um, uh, uh, though one argument I'd make around small buckler over large shields 
is um, uh, large shields impede the wielder so much more significantly than small shields do. That, right. uh, but they also, you know, like to me, the large shield is a much better thing in a chaotic battle situation where people are not necessarily as heavily trained, uh, and that's what we certainly see. You know, larger shields play a role in in a lot of sort of larger group encounters. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, whereas small shields, we see them more in this kind of civil defense environment. Um, and uh, and so they also lend themselves to um, to environments where there's a little bit more control over the environment. I'm not kind of concerned that I'm going to be shot at by an arrow from over here or attacked from somebody over there. Right. I kind of have a better sense of where um, where my opponents are. And the small shield allows for greater maneuverability of your sword. It doesn't impede the sword as much, so it does give you more room um, to be a skilled, sword, skilled swordsman. Um, whereas in a lot of ways, no matter how skilled a swordsman you are, when you're carrying a kite shield or even an embracciatura um, uh, to get kind of into the Bolognese vein, uh, it does impede the sword work that is possible. Or even in the Rotella, like the Rotella um, right. uh, assaults are much simpler than the sword and buckler assaults. And a lot of that is because the Rotella takes up a lot of space. So would you say the the larger the defensive object, the more it's suited for somebody who's poorly skilled and the less you need than the more skilled yes. you have to be to use it? And I think also the environment is that when I have an environment where, you know, when you have um, larger melee situations, um, the skill of the individual swordsman also becomes less relevant. And right. so having a, a weapon that is suited to when skill is less relevant is also something to think of for the larger shield. Now, that's kind of one theory that I think there's a lot of ways we see that play out. Yet, back to this having a sword and buckler in your home, the buckler also has this utility of being small, being portable, um, you know, being something you can carry on your belt or you can have tucked behind your door uh, and you can pick it up very easily and put it to immediate use, immediate service. Uh, whereas, you know, you don't, I imagine if somebody breaks into your home, you can grab the stick and the buckler. It's a lot harder to be like, I'm going to go crap, strap on my tight shield. <laughs> Hang on. It's... Got it. Got it. So it's kind of like your nine mil, which you can just have sort of sitting in the dresser right. versus your right. 50 cal, which just takes a little bit of setup time. Also, we should yeah, remember and, that. Yeah, go ahead. And, and we do see that with, you know, as far as like the, the buckler being a portable shield. You know, which is the same thing of the side sword, you know, that, you know, even this term that we spotted the lapto that we use of meaning, yeah. which has this this sort of um, uh, calc, you know, it is a sidearm. That is the weapon you can carry versus the weapon that you, um, it is the weapon that you can carry in a portable fashion as opposed to the weapon that you actually have to literally carry like a rifle or that you carry alongside you or that you pack onto um, uh, onto your, your transport uh, and then you take off when you get to the place that you're going to use it. Uh, I think the buckler fits into that same sidearm category. It's something it. that you take with you more easily. And so I think, I, to me, the reason I think it's very forward in a lot of the Bolognese material is because those are people that are selling their art to a particular audience, and that audience is interested in that. And there's there's a bunch of circumstances of civil defense, of a certain amount of skilled swordsmanship, perhaps, um, that that lead that to being the more marketable item. And I think that, you know, from the way that people talk about it in their books and the fact that we know that these were professionals who were selling their services in a different way than people who were pat- um, sword masters to patrons, as we have with some, or were noble in some circumstance themselves, that changes the nature of what they're presenting 
And I think, again, I think it's just market pressures are part of what puts that system Interesting. Um, Interesting. Now, I don't just mean market okay. pressures in uh, what yeah, you're yeah, going to yeah, get yeah. paid for, but also in what the demand is to to learn a particular thing. Right. So it's kind of like teaching on the streets versus teaching to a, a nobleman who hires you to be his private tutor. Right. Yeah, it's it's actually really interesting too. I um, so I was reading. Uh, there's a book called um, "A Society of Violence um, in." Bologna, and it covers from 1200 up to about 1600. And one of the things that I was talking about in this book was actually that you had to get a basically a concealed carry permit to carry a sword, or even carry a defensive implement like a buckler or something like that in the city. Right. Um, and it was it was actually a really exclusive thing. Uh, I thought that was interesting. That is interesting. interesting. Yeah. When I was I was reading, I went went um, when I was doing research for my rapier book, I was. Um, looked through a whole bunch of different uh, laws around weapons carries in uh, in Italy in a bunch of the different city states, what I could find on that. Um, I looked through a bunch of the Tudor laws from England uh, and there was there were prohibitions. It was notable to me. There were prohibitions against bucklers as much as there were prohibitions against um, yes. daggers and swords. So I thought that was notable. Well, you know, when you're counter to anything involving somebody trying to go for a press or something like that is to basically yeah. punch them with the rim of the buckler, you start to feel a little bit that it's, it is, Just remember, it can be as offensive as defensive. It's not a buckler. It's a pot lid that I'm carrying outside of my house right now. <laughs> you never know when you're going to come across a pot of boiling water that you have to cover. That's right. Right. All right. Um, so, how would you approach the teaching of sword and small buckler di as different from sword and large buckler or sword and targa? Um, well, I think we have touched on that a little bit at the mm -hmm. kind of the outset of this. When the small buckler, to me, swordsmanship is much more forward. Um, the, meaning the actual sword side of the equation is more forward in the teaching than it is when we get to larger shields that take up more of that space and thus simplify the swordsmanship that's possible. Um, or or not necessarily, you know, I mean, it's possible while maintaining the defense of the, of the shield. Right, right, right. I can always bring put my shield behind me and, and, and do whatever I want with my sword. Um, but that also takes away a lot of the benefit. The thing that I, the thing that I love about small buckler that I think is so notable about it is that I can keep it very present while continuing to do a lot of work with my sword. I still have a lot of tactical possibilities with the sword while still having the cover and added control that the small buckler gives me uh, in the way that the small buckler kind of enhances the, the defense of the sword itself. Right. Um, okay. So that makes sense. So it's kind of the sortiest. The smaller, small buckler is sort of the sortiest of them all. That's right. It's you, you get to put up the sword <laughs> meter um, while having a little bit less on the defense, the, the buckler meter. Um, and so, you know, when I, I would say, you know, I used to teach um, sword and buckler together immediately. So you actually had the buckler in your hand right away. We taught everything. Right. You know, if you didn't have a buckler, we didn't have enough in the school. You put an arm out in front of you with a fist. And yep, yep. Uh, and still did did the stuff. Um, I have since then spent more time uh, with sword alone um, because I do find that um, uh, it is a benefit for when you're working with a small buckler to have good sword alone skills. Um, yep. And because there's a lot of room, and then and then we add to it the small 
small buckler. And then the first things that I'm teaching is how do you keep doing the sword alone things you've done while maintaining the presence of the buckler? Uh, and so that's that's kind of the the stage that we work there. Whereas when I teach larger shield work, um, we will, in some ways, we'll have the large, you know, I might, like, again, most of my students are going to come with some sword work background already. But if I was doing a workshop, I might have people, I might teach them just basic cuts with the sword and then bring the shield in right away because it's going to be a much more co-equal partner to that relationship because it's right. always occupying so much more space. And so then we'll be really looking at how, you know, we're immediately working within the limitations of that shield. Uh, and so that that has such a, a much more central role. Whereas to me, the small buckler, it's really more like how do you maneuver the buckler in such a way that it doesn't limit the sword and only enhances it. So this is what I'm wondering. Yeah. Is Would it be fair to say that the – sorry, just to go with this real fast. Would it be fair to say that the sure. sword and small buckler is actually swordier than the sword by itself because you can actually do so much more with it because your hand is protected? So, you know, one thing that um, you talked, you mentioned um, uh, the video, like from WW. There's another WW video of me and Rob Rutherford doing an exhibition about Sword and Buckler and Sword Alone. And one thing that's notable, I think, that I just mentioned next is a video you could grab. Um, when somebody's fighting Sword Alone, and, you know, Manchilino makes that explicit thing that you throw half blows. Um, and, you know, that is, as you're mentioning, is to keep the sword in front of you. So it certainly does limit. I think that it ends up pushing things a little bit more towards a Giocostretto type space. Right. And I mean Giocostretto not in going into Preze, but Giocostretto meaning the presence of the points and the proximity of the weapons. Right, right. Um, and then when you have a buckler and you see this in our fight, as soon as we have the buckler, suddenly we're, you know, much broader guards. We're using, you know, we're using more Joko Largo because the buckler does provide protection for the sword hand, but also protection for your body when you're moving through larger actions. Um, so I can, uh, yes, there's a certain way that it is swordier, but I'd say it's more Largo. There's more room for playing between Largo and Stretto. There's, so there's more, a greater breadth of options um, that you will have available to you safely um, or more safely than you would with sword alone, where, you know, just I would advocate just as uh, some of the historical masters do to be more conservative when you're fighting sword alone. Yeah, I agree with that. I, you know, I, I kind of think back to like, again, kind of bringing up Manchiolino's advice also, like, like what you were saying, him telling you not to leave the low guards um, when you're in an earnest fight, right? And he's, he's right. talking about, and you see that where he, when he actually describes fighting with a sharp sword, which comes from the sword and large buckler section or the sword alone section, um, then you don't leave low guards. You're you're hanging out in Porta de Ferro, Strata, or Cota Longa Alta, um, and you're just kind of progressing the fight from there. Mm. Um, so how do you see in terms of like um the dichotomy of those two things right because it there is that sort of fine line between it seems like the the sword and small buckler is always associated with having uh the um like a a non-sharp sword right you're you're fighting with a practice weapon in some way and you know Manchiolino gives his uh, his nice allegory at the beginning of his chapter where he's talking about how you know you no one can achieve uh, victory without uh, grace and talking about the uh, the nymphs as as sort of the the true allegory of what that wide play style of fighting looks like, um, and then you get into later prose and he's talking about um, with. Uh, 
Ajax and um, Odysseus and the, the difference between their speech and how even though Odysseus was the, definitely the better order, but you have um, Ajax who actually knew the spirit of his men because he was like hardened and fighting alongside them and he actually understood where they were coming from where you know he kind of saw Odysseus more as this character that was um, sort of removed from that in a way he was a, he was a lot more of a, a noble character and therefore he was a great order but he wasn't Ajax he wasn't the one that was just going to the front of the lines and fighting um, and so he uses that as almost a metaphor to take it into the sharp weapons where there's almost like this different feel that you start to get with the sharp weapons. Um, how do you see those two things really kind of play out as you're kind of reading through the text and, and how do you view changing the strategy between those two things? Between spotted a joke and spotted a philo mm -hmm. kind of meaning and within a backward context. Yeah. And so, and also like how, how does, so I guess asking to really just kind of expand on what you were just talking about, where the difference between that small buckler and that large buckler mentality. Mm -hmm. um, and between sharps and, and solid sword play. Yeah, I think, you know, um, there is that same thing that seems to come between just, you know, whether it's with a secondary or not between spotted a joko and spotted a philo and this change of attitude that's required for those two um, modes. There's a, a part in Morozzo where he talks about uh, that you it's like a uh, you could void the leg here, but that wouldn't be very interesting. There's a section where he says something like that. And I, I think that's, that is speaking also to the spotted a joko, that there is a need for doing something that's interesting in spotted a joko, which is speaking a little bit to the social pressure or to what fighting is about there. They, I think it's one thing to think about, uh, and I'm kind of taking an obtuse angle at your question, but right now, one thing that comes up in our our modern world of this martial practice is that there is no place where we go and fight with sharps. Um, and so the conversation of whether it's important to be interesting or efficient is kind of merged sometimes into the same spaces right? Um, uh, in a way that, that there was, you know, the, the display fighting place uh, and even, hmm, um, uh, even because actually the, re the reality is that even duels with sharps were display fighting places in, in a certain manner right. as well. Um, but it's just, I just think it's difficult for us to even experience, um, you know, I can think now, I can say, okay, you know, in our school, we're really seeking to do this as a martial art. And we're not, you know, so, you know, tournaments are a tool for us to help develop ourselves as complete martial artists, etc. So we can say that and we, we tr try to embody that idea. Um, but even that being said, we're, we don't have the same social pressures that they did. So even when we're trying to do something that is recreating a duel, there is, we have our own, we try to create our own social pressure. Certainly people in the group are like, oh, that person did, you know, that person just, uh, you know, hand sniped their way through that boring, that person there right. was, you know, did such beautiful actions and oh, that was gorgeous. That way they did that disarm. That's, you know, some more social cred uh, for that person. So we can have that kind of pressure within our school, but there was never a risk that somebody was going to die there that that's yeah, you know the, so there wasn't that we can maybe bring this other social thing you know the being able to perform things that are beautiful in a dueling context where somebody could actually die is different than in just the social pressure non-lethal display 
And yet also then we get into a tournament. We try to make, you know, people, many people try to say that they were trying to make tournaments like the high pressure live and die situation. <laughs> yet it isn't. Uh, yeah. You know, it's yet its own, you know, like I'd right. say we should look at our tournaments and look at medieval tournaments if we want to have a better sense of, of kind of, of, of that, that environment of non-lethal. Although medieval tournaments were also more lethal than our yeah, tournaments are. We, we need to get rid of face masks. <laughs> it's the face masks. I mean, um, somebody's going to snap so, at so your I, face I without just, a mask against your attention for sure. Yeah, so I think I think this is the, the thing that I'm getting at here is when we think about what's the difference between Sharp's play and and you know historically when we look at it, there's even there there's a few different modes. There is a type of Sharp's play which is you are fighting in the street and you this is just survival. That is not a noble on the other side who is is, is that you are there as part of a larger social. Um, encounter there's that type of of sharps play and we see some stories and ideas and it communicated about what the attitude is you need to bring in the battlefield uh, which is different than the attitude and the comportment you know you think of all of Morozzo's second book on 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 how to comport oneself in a judicial duel that's a different environment yet again that can still have a lethality to it but it's like social plus lethal and so then i think there's still a different pressure that they're a different way. I think that they're fighting in a fight on the street is going to be different again to a sharps, but in a dual judicial or extrajudicial duel um, versus um, play in the cell for fitness and exercise and to, to preserve the vitality of life. Uh, you know, to kind of paraphrase Manchilino and, um, uh, and martial display, we are doing a, in the piazza display, we're doing it at a social event display, which is yet another type of environment. And I see, I feel that there's there's writing, you know, there's there's commentary, not as direct as we might want, but there's commentary on all of those things in the manuals um, uh, to speak to these kind of different approaches uh, based on those, you know, I've kind of outlined four different environments. Uh, and I think that yeah. it does get more conservative as it gets more violent. Um, right, as it gets yeah. more risky, it gets more right. conservative, it gets simpler, it gets, you know, down to, you know, like to think of non the Bolognese area, but, you know, Fiore saying essentially that there's no more counters than the third countermaster. There's like a, a countermaster and a counter countermaster, and th that's it. Um, you know, it never, <laughs> that's, that's, right. that I think is important to uh, kind of the street fighting world that you're just going to do something with, with, um, with violence and vigor, and it'll be simple. And then as it gets more social influence comes into it, the greater the social importance, the more the display and the less conservative, the more it becomes important to use the noble blows that leave you more exposed. Um, you know, that kind of thing, I think, as, this, as the social factor increases. I do, I do see that there's still a level of posturing. Uh, with Manchiolino in particular. So just uh, since that's where my head's at, I'm going to stick with Manchiolino. Yeah. But, um, you know, with even with the way that he approaches the sword and large buckler, um, you know, his approach is that strangery of space, that initial gather in a measure that's forcing your opponent to react or to retreat. And if they retreat, they're shamed. And mm -hmm. you're, you're basically showing a bit of bravado where you're gathering into measure in guard and saying, I dare you to attack me. Right. And right. the whole the whole principle and precipice of what he's doing is that he's giving you very sound defensive actions that you can play off of 
based on how your opponent decides to attack you. And of course, they're limited in their attack, which makes it, you know, harder for your opponent. Whereas, you know, with, I think a lot of times when people look at sword and large buckler, they think of uh, sort of the posturing aspect really coming from the flourishes and from the embellishments. And, you know, you're really, you're showing your skill. And I think that there's, you know, perhaps a, a level of both. Um, one of the experiments that I've been running uh, with one of my training partners is we'll, we'll go between doing both where we'll approach all of Manchialino's sword and large buckler plays by doing both um, sort of wide measure, very like we're, we're flowing through the guards as we're approaching one another. And then we'll just kind of have our, our sword down, you know, very like hulked over shoulders, just posturing at one another as if we were in a street fight. And then just gathering whenever we want, just sporadically gathering into measure to draw the reaction out of our opponent, just to see, you know, the two things. One, you develop the flow coming in, and two, you're just kind of trying to get that visceral reaction from your opponent. And it's really fascinating um, trying to draw that visceral response out of somebody, especially in, in, like a, in a sparring scenario when they're not expecting it. Because if you're giving that really flowing, nice show of your ability to sort of use arms, they, they recognize your skill, and then all of a sudden you show them this stillness and then all of a sudden you explode at them and they're just like, oh, whoa, <laughs> this is terrifying. Mm. Um, yeah, and well, so. the one thing, though, is I don't know that I feel anything in Menchilino is really written for the street fight. I think all of it is written for for dueling or or solo fencing. Uh, like, I, I think, think there's that... earnest I think there's earnest fencing in there, but I don't I don't feel like um, it, it doesn't. I, I think that there's things we can gather from it. Um, uh, about how he might approach uh, a street fight or, you know, a real a fight for his life in a different, less noble context. Um, I think part of that is because that's what the audience is looking for that he's writing to. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of books to be sold. Like, there, honestly, right now, even as a, you know, in modern martial arts, there's not a lot of books to be sold on or workshops to be sold just on how do you survive a brutal street encounter. Because it's it's a pretty small discussion. <laughs> so, um, what do you think would be? Do you think any of the Bolognese authors are in are writing for that sort of situation? Um, I like. I think that there's good content in all of them for dealing with that situation. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that um, uh, any of them are. You know, I know. You know, yeah, like I, I, I know like your thoughts, Stephen, on like that the Anonimo is more like a death dealing <laughs> oriented <laughs> text. Um, but, I, but I still, but there's so much in it. And that's yeah. way more, you know, right. again, like I think that just, that's, it's way more than you need yeah. if that's, you know, and so again, I think there's stuff to get out of there, but it's not even like the books start with or, or end with, um, uh, like, you know, I, I suppose there's a little bit of like, you know, Manchilino has kind of the, his universal Perry section right. uh, is a little bit maybe that kind of idea of, of you know, that I'm, I'm just making this low inside position and then I make a thrust out from that, an imbricata out from that, and then I come back to that position, which is, is what we see maybe in the, that's probably the most common how you deal with. Uh, but I don't even know that that universal Perry idea, which is also like in Vigiani and is in Capoferro and is in Fiore, I don't even know that that idea is an idea for fighting thug on street. 
I, I feel like okay. that's still even that's like unskilled noble going into duel. This would be more like are you thinking then like Docellini would be an example of somebody who's writing for fighting in the streets because it's pretty there's pared certainly, down. There's certainly more more to it there. Although I still feel like I I, I feel like that's also um you know like Agrippa's also really pared down too, but he's clearly writing for dueling. He's just writing to the to how the dueling is changing. That's 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 hard to say whether paring down. There's, I think paring down is also something that's happening within um, uh, thinking at that time. Is there's a little bit more of a, a move towards, you know, at least that's what Agrippa's trying to bring in there is a sort of move towards an engineering level of elegance. Um, right. Uh, so I think that's more to do with like purity of thought than it is to do with um, utility. Okay. Um, all right. That makes sense. That's my off the cuff kind of yeah these, that'd be these interesting, like cool things yeah. like i feel like man we should like this is a research project worthy kind of subject yeah and we should, like i'd want I'd, to go through a lot of things passage by passage to really it'd be um, interesting to look at the masters on this sort of continuum of you know survival versus social and kind of like place them there to get to sort of because a lot of what we're doing right now is sort of trying to understand how they practice the martial arts in the context of their time which is a lot about mm -hmm. the history of that time and it'd be interesting to look at you know what techniques were they using that sort of thing so mm -hmm. uh, an interesting note here uh devin i don't know if we talked about this last time we may have um but the only time that Murato ever mentions the word death or murder in his right. text is is in his dagger section in his right. uh, fifth book um he says if somebody's trying to murder you with a dagger right. And that's that's the only sort of real like, real deadly thing that Marazzo talks about. And of course, you know, you get the sense of that because somebody's trying to stab you with a dagger, and that sounds terrifying. But in terms of the fencing, you know, like you were saying, I mean, it, it does seem that most of this is all sal oriented. So, well, and and again, I think it's you know, like I've even uh, the Marazzo's dagger section is such a funny kind of like hodgepodge of greatest hits um, that he's I, just he's. He's just copying Fiore, right? And and I feel like and and also meaning those actually those actions show up in a lot of places um, uh, in different different European texts because there's you know there's kind of there's some pretty fundamental kind of ideas of the Rondell daggers, um, but I feel like it, it is again where I say it's kind of this greatest hits. One of my thoughts on that is you know again he's selling a book, he's selling teaching, and one thing you know, a martial arts person needs to be able to say is, you know, like, oh, and what if you're assaulted by some peasant on the street? Don't worry, I've got that too. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I, right. can, I can, I can, don't worry, this is a real martial art, it also has daggers. And for, it, it, pe for people of a certain class, the daggers on the street were more dangerous than swords. There's, right. a, there's a lot of, people who have money generally are more <laughs> likely to be killed by a dagger than they are to die in a battle. Right, right. Well, and you can, going back to what we had talked about before with the whole, you know, needing a permit to have a sword or a buckler in the streets of Bologna, you can easily conceal a dagger, but you can't really conceal a sword. Right, and you also have reason to carry a dagger. They were considered to be utility as well as right uh, as weapons. And Devin, it's 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 totally okay now to admit that Murato probably plagiarized Fiore, given that we've found so much information that ties Murato to uh, Fiore's text, so... Right. Um, we we've got we've got Lancelotto Beccaria, who was one of Fiore's students, named students, um, ended up basically putting the Bentivoglio in power uh, in Bologna, 
And mm. so that's one length of Fiore into the city of Bologna. And the other one, of course, is that Guido Rangoni spent a considerable amount of time in Ferrara. So we think that uh, we're, you think, you we're, think that we're he, fairly he certain at this point. had a chance to read Fiore, one of Fiore's yeah. uh, texts. Yeah, because his his uh, his uncles were uh, trained as knights in the city of Ferrara, right? By the Dieste family, so um, that would kind of bring that information back in. So we're starting to get a lot of context clues to really start putting those threads in there. So. We're, we on this podcast at least we feel very comfortable with saying that uh, yeah he took the good stuff out of Fiore and, and came up with other stuff that's better because it's exactly. Bolognese right. yeah <laughs> you know the, the one the, I think the thing especially when it comes down to dagger things though you know having done a bunch of different um, knife systems modern knife systems as well yeah. and I've done Southeast Asian martial arts a lot of idea those ideas show up there too um, and so that's you know, like if you were to ask a bunch of martial arts practitioners, especially if you gave them a weapon that was, a, you know, thrusting oriented dagger and said, OK, write down a bunch of grappling techniques. There'd be a lot of similarities. <laughs> right. uh, and so it'd be it'd be hard for me to say, oh, man, all these guys read Fiore. Um, <laughs> I, like, I feel like that that there would be, you know, especially if I just grab some particular corpus, uh, that that would be. Be That's... easy to make that. That, that would be a fun thing to bring up next time. Like, <laughs> scour the world for actually unique dagger Just defense moves. Fiori, yeah. Fiori traveled all over the world. All right, that's right. That's we, definitely we what we're going to conclude. We're going to conclude that they're all ripping <laughs> off Fiori. Right. We should probably move on here. We should probably Love move it. on. All right. So, Devin, you're kind of on the taller side as fencers go. It'd be reasonable to say, and, and pretty athletic. How might this change your approach to fencing compared to somebody else? Uh, somebody who's short and unathletic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or somebody who's short and athletic, or somebody who's right. You know, any of the permutations um, thereof. You know, to the the main thing, the main difference between um, short and tall is that you have to be uh, very aware of the uh, the the moving between kind of I call it bridging, or which I still kind of from from Bruce Lee. Um, was that I I can one I can stand in a place for many opponents where I can hit them and they can't hit me, and so yeah. they still need to bridge into my distance um, right. in order to present threat. Um, but a shorter fencer sometimes has to do that kind of twice. They have to get through my distance. They have to safely transition across this place where I can hit them and they can't hit me. And then they need to transition again into the next distance where they can hit me. But of course I can still hit them. Right. Um, and so. Um, and so that's something that I work with when I'm working with, and this is a thing, and I think sword and buckler are, is a really beautiful combination for that because you can create a lot more of a of a, a tactical constraining space using the sword and buckler together. And so you can use that to allow you to get through that first danger place, um, to get through and get, and just make your first objective has to do with bridging that distance and getting into a position of control that you can use to earn the time not to strike but to bridge the next distance and increasing your control more greatly. Um, so that's kind of, I think that the main thing that a, a shorter fencer needs to be considering, and we'll worry about athletic here in a moment, but a shorter fencer needs to think they cannot be as anxious as maybe a, 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 a taller fencer can afford to be a little more anxious, rush to the attack a little earlier. You know, like to quote a later master, Fabra says, teaches a bunch of things about stringere, and then he says, oh, but if you're taller, you don't need to worry about stringere. Just, just <laughs> use your reach, right? Like there is... Okay. Um, uh, so 
there so there is some truth to that now i think all tall fencers should learn to control because then they've got tremendous power to their to, to them right but the shorter fencers may be in the beneficial position that they to get good they're going to have to control they cannot rely on on just being able to outreach their opponents so they're going to be those good fencers who are shorter are going to be way better fencers but they've got to be less anxious more oriented towards control less oriented towards hitting they need to be more oriented towards um, you know, getting first control and then getting greater control. And I think the Bolognese text gives lots of, you know, for those who are studying a Bolognese system, which really teaches to compound intentions very early. Um, well, I don't know if they did, but they certainly present compound intentions in the manuals very early. Um, that idea, I often think of, I'm not, my goal is not to hit them four times in a row. I'm using these different actions in order to allow me to cross these distances to get into a place where I can't help but hit them. Yeah. Now, on the, the athletic versus non-athletic side, um, you know, if you are quicker, strong, let's say, let's talk about quicker first. So if you're quicker yeah. than your opponents, you can, you can get into the distance, you know, very, very fast. Um, the, the, the thing is you can take away your opponent's capacity to get away from you without having to have timing, right? So very fast people can can be less reliant on timing because they can um they can you know strike you before you're just phys even if you see them coming you're physically just not able to get out of that distance right. perhaps and so when you're less fast um then you need to be more aware of timing you need to be more aware of taking moments from your opponent where they cannot get away from you so if you're short and slower than your opponents, this is all relative. Everybody's got somebody right. taller and faster out there. Right, right, right. I have there are students in my school that are taller and faster than me. As frightening as that sounds, um, <laughs> uh, and so just for those who are listening, I'm I'm six four. I have a couple students here who are six six. Um, one of them is like another two inches or three inches broader than me. He's just a monster of a guy. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I get to feel some of that side of the equation too. And so everybody out there is going to have that. So when you are relatively less reaching and less, uh, less quick than your opponent, then you need to be really thinking about how you're bridging those distances and you need to be really using your opponent's movements against them. You need to draw them into, you have to have them come and join the fight. Um, and then you need to take away, you know, so if, again, if I'm shorter and slower, I've got to lure my opponent into making a very committed entry action towards me that I can take away to essentially counter enter. So I might, as a shorter fencer, be teasing the edge of that measure, trying to get that person to make a larger commitment. And I think one thing you have to watch out for is you can't, I, this is when, um, Stephen even talked to me about this at one point about people who just run away from you a lot. If you lure somebody who's you now somebody might run away from you because they're timid, they might run away from you because they're taller, because they know I can keep you at this perfect distance and I'm just going to keep you there. If you um, lure that person to enter on you, if you on the first sign of them giving you a little bit of entry, you try to jump all over that, they will never give you that again. Mm. So you have to you have to actually ignore their first little forays so that they feel they get impatient and feel a greater need to go in larger than that, to go in a little bit deeper. And that's the one you take. Yeah. The Anonimo, Marazzo, and Manchilino all give that advice, right? They all say that 
if you have an opponent that uh, wants to run away from you, you should basically retreat before them right. until they gain the confidence that you can yes. then counterattack them. And I think all three of them basically to say the same thing. So, I mean, in some Marazzo, manner or another, yeah. It, right. Morazzo gives his his analogy of if you fight against a, a, a fighter who only knows Larga, then they'll they'll basically run away the entire length of the cell. You will, yeah, exactly, yeah. But the Anonimo and Michelino both agree that you should basically retreat until you give them the, the confidence that they're going to they're gonna come in on you. Except then, you should uh, also never yeah. retreat. Right. <laughs> well... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I think you know one one thing I often I do often equate those things to dancing to you know you need the person needs to come and dance with you. I often call it joining. They need to come and you need to find some way to get them to come and participate with you. When they're denying participation, um, then it's a much more challenging game, especially if you can't just outreach or outspeed your opponent. Well, you know, I so I, I find this interesting too, right? Because in some way, even the people who want to run away, a lot of times, like you were saying, it's, it's kind of built off the pressure of you giving them some sort of, whether it's with your footwork and your distance or something along those lines, you're the one that's kind of driving them away. But a lot of times they'll still kind of like hang at that, like you were saying, kind of at the edge of measure, and they'll just kind of keep that distance. But very distance aware people, especially mm-hmm. taller people who are distance aware, love to play this game, right? And so, you know, um, I think with uh, with the anonymous advice with that is like when you want to fight somebody who is very good at, at wide play is to sort of use that same idea. And I think you 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 sort of referenced this or at least sort of uh, alluded to this in in your discussion, kind of leading to this point where you know that changing step where you can make it. You can almost give them a fainted step backwards. And I see I actually see that quite a bit in. Um, even in uh, Manchiolino with uh, some of his large and, uh, sword and large buckler plays where um, it, it's like you, you give that aggressive step forward and then the opponent, you know, obviously we don't get what the opponent's doing, but your first action is that almost like you're going back to do that changing step, but what you're doing is you're almost kind of luring them to take that extra half step in. Maybe they do an accrescimento with their front foot and then that extra you accressing back that half step is what makes them do a full pass and then you can exploit that, you know, mm-hmm. kind of that idea. I think that the mechanics of the changing step are important too because they, um, if, if you've ever tried to um, kind of lure somebody in and... Um, if you're stepping away is a fully honest stepping away, it's hard to uh, take away the opponent's commensurate advance. So meaning, you know, if I step away from you, and so if I give you a full honest step away and you go, okay, and you come forward, and then I go, oh, now I'm going to go at you, well, then you're free to immediately retreat from me again. Um, and so whereas the, the kind of part of the mechanics that I think are really inherent in steps like changing steps are that it is a retreat that is my body is already beginning to move back forward. So I'm able to, and I, you know, when I'm teaching this and I, I see it very much in, in thing in like Manchilino more actually than Morozzo is that there is, you can, when you're changing your feet in the changing step, you can be rotating your body so that your momentum actually continues back from a retreat back into a forward right. motion. So you kind of get like a little U shape of your of your kinetic energy. And so that allows yeah. you to lure the person in and step forward while they're following you. 
So I start to step away and then you go, oh, he's going and you start to come towards me and I'm already entering back in on you. Um, and I think that's something that's really important to the changing step. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think the other thing that I found too, and this is something that I've, I've just started to explore with, uh, with my sword and buckler students is when you fight against somebody that just wants to retreat, um, to actually, to pressure them and to continue, I know this kind of defies Manchiolino or, uh, Manchiolino and the anonymous advice here, but is to continue to pressure them with, you know, narrow play. Well, that this fits with the anonymous. You continue to pressure them with narrow play to get them going in those steps and in the sequence of your attacks, pay attention to their steps until you get that right tempo where you can hit them at a, with a wide play action. So this is kind of similar to the Anonymous advice where he says, um, you know, if you're fighting somebody who's good at wide play, then you should act like you want to fight narrow and then hit them at wide play. So mm -hmm. you give them the pressure and the feeling that you're going to chase them and then you catch them in the step. You know, obviously with sword and buckler, it's easier to go for a lower target like the leg or something like that. With sword alone, you're probably going to go to a shallow target like the hand. But there are tempos that you can definitely start to create those those opportunities and start to exploit those things as you're driving people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think another part um, uh, to pushing somebody is um, retreating first doesn't always get the reaction that you want because sometimes somebody who, you know, we think about the people that like Moroso is describing or, you know, like if I retreat first, they might just be like, okay, see ya. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> great, good. I was feeling a little bit of pressure there and I'm happy that's off now. Um, I, that there is a benefit to pushing your opponent. Um, but not pushing them so much that they run away from you. I want to push them so that they retreat from me um, uh, and thinking that differently. So if somebody runs away from me, then they tend to fully exit. And so then they are full, their goal is to become completely clear of that situation. And then they will keep becoming clear of it until they can relax and then think about entering. And then you just started from the beginning. Whereas I, sometimes I want to give, uh, a the right amount of pressure to this person that they that they retreat but they don't leave the fight then i give them some ground so that they feel that the turnaround is occurring in the fight and so like in a very simple way most people in their most basic sense of fighting have an attacking mode and a defending mode and attacking modes typically involve forward movement and defending modes typically involve retreating movement um and uh, and so I want to push a little bit and then they'll feel that we've changed turns, that it's now their turn to become, to move into attacking mode and I'm going to be in retreating mode. But of course I'm using something like a changing step. I'm giving just the artificial sense that I'm taking that off so that when they change direction, when they go, oh, it's my turn now and begin to repost if they're aggressive or begin to step back in to seek control, they're simply stepping into a renewed entry from me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So that's also a way that we Six. can use that retreat in a way that I think Manchiolino wouldn't have admonished us for being cowardly. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and also what I think we see in a lot of the assaulty, um, uh, where you have this kind of pressure, pressure, and then at the ends, even with the, you know, if there's an embellishment, or, but there tends to be kind of a forward and then a withdraw and then a re-forward. You know, like there's a lot of this like pressure off pressure off pressure which to me is creating those moments where i can in, invite lure the other person to, to believe that the initiative is changing to them and then retake it from them, take away their 
that tempo of their entry or that tempo of their changing guard. Cool. That's excellent. So um, the sources tell us that sword and small back buckler was usually fought with a spotted joko or foil. What do you think the sword would have been like? Have you seen any examples that you think? Yeah, Roberto Gatti has some. Okay. Um, uh, and uh, I've seen um, uh, the examples that I've seen that seem to fit into that. Some look like foiled weapons, so they're they have like narrowed, um, lighter swords, rounded ends. I've seen a few with with like kind of oval uh-huh. ends yeah um and then there's some that um there's some curators have said they have they don't look like they ever had they looked to me like swords but they just curators said they didn't look like they ever had an edge but they have damage um and so that's the other so there's maybe just blunt just blunted swords is the other other kind of thing that we're seeing um i often go back to these uh, uh It'll come to me here. There's a there's a an artist who's a caricature artist uh, who did a bunch of in the 1500s did a bunch of these um, uh, sort of funny funny drawings. Cool. And okay. he he shows um, people two people fighting with bird cages on their heads, um, <laughs> holding. Uh, no, he's making fun of something, but he's making right. fun of um, people doing a particular thing, and they have uh, j- basically giant backs of like potpourri on the end of their swords uh, and the <laughs> okay. swords also i can't remember i have to look back at the image of the swords also are rebated but he's making fun of it so all these are exaggerations but he's exaggerating right. something that is actually occurring in his time okay. so that's that to me is one of the there's often a lot of debate as to whether people wore modified helmets of any kind that right. to me is one interesting data point in that he's making fun of these people wearing bird cages on their heads so it suggests to me that they're wearing some sort he's making fun of people wearing some sort of like grill helmets right okay. um that's and that and they have birds in the cages. Um, it's <laughs> I, I can find that that artist. I think uh, I, I'm trying to remember. I keep Quintino keeps coming to mind, but it isn't Quintino. Quintino's the guy who who tells you to do your rapier and dagger by putting your your rapier between your knees and draw your dagger and throw it at them, and then while they're defending <laughs> against the dagger, pull the sword out and stab them. That's Quintino. Yeah. So also kind of a caricature of, <laughs> but Quintino is being serious. Um, is he the, also the guy that tells you when you're fighting a bear to stick your hand all the way in the bear's mouth? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I've only read some small sections of Quintino. He he also Quintino has the um gives the does the 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 um defenses actually more so in other places the dagger defense to roll in your back and put your feet in their chest and throw them no, which the, seems to show up in a lot technique. of manuals. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and Quintino says that's the only technique required. <laughs> okay. No other dagger <laughs> techniques required. That's it. That's it. So Excellent. Yeah, he's he's, he's a street guy because he, yeah, he, he developed a, a pared down system. Right. That's true. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> I, apparently, we already knew the answer to this. A guy did come up with this pared down system. You just need this rapier dagger, throw the dagger, stab the rapier <laughs> thing, and this uh, and the, the one the one dagger throw, and you're you're done. Neat. You're golden. It's either that or he was he was doing Renaissance jujitsu. Right. Right. So one of the things I always thought was interesting is in Italian, the word for foil is fioretto, which is basically a floret, like um, like a flower bud. Right. Or like, you know, the end of a piece of broccoli. So it, to me, it, it kind of suggests that at some point the standard came to have a bulb on the end of it, kind of like what mm-hmm. you were saying. Yes. Um, but I guess we'll, we'll never really know for sure. Yeah, be, you know, Roberto 
uh, if you get a chance to take a look there. He has a whole collection um, in his museum about uh, training equipment from various periods. Now, a lot of that tends to lean 1800s, right. um, but he does have some earlier um, foiled weapons. Well, I'm sure it'd be great to take a trip out to Brescia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it would work for our research, too. Yeah. We, we need to get out there, Stephen. Yes, we do. All right. We're going to spend a lot of time there. Uh, before we get to that last question, yep. actually, I've got one more. Yeah. So, um, Devin, when we're looking at Marazzo or with Manchiolino, um, both authors put a lot of emphasis on the fact that they think that Mezzospada and the plays and techniques that come from Mezzospada are where the true art really lies, With uh, even with fighting with the sword and small buckler. Both of them make pretty grandiose statements that... You know everything that leads up to this point, and you know Marazzo even gives his sort of pedagog pedagogical approach to uh, the way that he sets it up is here's wide play, here's the transition between wide play and narrow play, mm -hmm. here's when you're going from narrow play to mezzospada, and then of course with Manchiolino in particular, you know he gives a lot of emphasis on his plays for for the mezzospada and even says like this is again where the true art lies so how do you see that overall in its context and and how important that is especially with something like sword and small buckler um i think that uh, so to me part of what's important about that's spot is that it is not just about the place of that close proximal distance but it is also the place where the weapon is not easily cleared so when we're interacting with the points of the weapons, then I can do these fuller clearing actions and I can clear your weapon. Whereas when we cross at the middle sword, my weapon is going to remain there. And so I think that one aspect of why the, the true art lies there is one is I think there's a lot more of the, of the different degrees of feeling are required in the blade at that point. And that's, we see that throughout um, uh, Renaissance and medieval texts, that, that seems to be where everybody feels the art is because that's what they spend so much of their time on is on the binds. And so this is the place where you must bind and the binds quality is much more important and there are many more degrees of it. Um, it is of course also the place where the deadliness is much more there because I can't exit from that situation as safely uh, without still potentially being struck by my opponent. Yeah, so I, mean, yeah. Kind of Man, I think Manchiolino says something akin to if you're in that place already, you should stay there because it's better to get right. hit with the lower half of the sword than it is the, right. you know, the <laughs> yes. upper portion of the sword, right? <laughs> so he's like, if you're going to get hit, at least get hit with the non-deadly part, right? So right. I didn't mean to interrupt. But no, no, that's great. I love that. That was a good addition. Um, and uh, yeah, and so I think that, you know, where... When we say, you know, this is where the art is, I think we can, we could think of that as being like, you know, one way we could think of that is, you know, where's the most flourish and the most, you know, like all the breadth there. But it can also be mean, where's the greater subtlety? What requires the greatest level of, of artifice, of, of, of understanding in, in why or where, what has the greatest importance? And that the place where, one, there's more greater level of feeling. The, the the risk is much, much higher. The potential to transition between these two different distances, the distance, you know, of the preze and the distance of of moving away into Largo play is still is there. So the op there is actually greater tactical options that conceivably exist in that place, especially if you're on the bad side of it. Um, I think that's, you know, I think of it as often that 
that's where the importance is. And where the importance is means that that's where the um, the subtlety and the greater level of awareness and where students should dedicate a greater portion of their time if they're worried about their survival. Um, yeah. So I think that's where what what we're seeing there is that emphasis. And I also find, you know, in my school, we spend I, we spend a lot of our time in the foundational level on Joko Stretto, spending time in binds, spending times um, be gaining a greater awareness. And it is, I would say, the greater art is required not the greater flourish, not the greater breadth, but the greater um, capacity to be able to control your own weapon and your opponent's weapon exists at that space. Um, and, uh, and I found that it pays big dividends to have people spend a lot of time there first. Because if you just leave people to their own devices to just fight as they will, um, they will avoid that space um, right. uh, unless they're kind of boxed into it. They'll, they'll have just these fleeting moments of that space and in those fleeting moments, they won't be able to learn enough to actually get good at it. Yeah, that's actually, I think that's what, what's wrong with Hema's longsword scene. But <laughs> that's mm. just me personally. But, um, I, you know, it's, it's interesting, like when you were, you were talking about that, I was kind of um, thinking about the fact that um, I, lost, I lost the thought there. Um, I, I, I just... I agree with you. I'll, I'll maybe comment on that one thing. Maybe it'll stimulate you. I, I agree. I think I think it's Sword and Buckler fighting in HEMA. I think Joko Stretto is missing in a lot of fighting in HEMA. Yeah. And in a lot of... it's. And I think there's a couple things. It's, it is... Um, sometimes where the art is, is a place that is less intuitive, is a less... feels yeah. less common sense to people. Right. How extending your body over this greater lever of the, the blade of, of, of the extending from your hand. Um, that is not intuitive to us as humans, how, how that interacts and how the edges interact with one another and, right. and what, how those forces, how the weapons slide and collect into each other's hilts or not. Right. Um, all of those sorts of things do not come. That's to me is where the magic of, of the art is as well. Yeah. And it's the thing that I think requires the greatest study and the greatest time to understand. And so so, you know, in the, in the, you know, greater HEMA world, there is, a, again, the, um, in a world where most people aren't good at that, you don't necessarily need to be good at it. And the person who manages their distance and their timing and um, can, you know, use some physical attributes down to a, a few core movements will, will be the, the, the victor for a long time. So, um, yeah. So one place I, I think, I, I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. You got your thought? I did. I got it back. All right, um, great. So I, what I was thinking about when you were talking about that was actually Giganti. Um, mm. And it's it's the opposite problem, right? So in Giganti's second book, he talks about how if you have been training in the cell, which, you know, given Giganti's work, we can imagine is a lot of Gioco Stretto. He says that you have to go out and you have to fight random people in the street, or at least, um, you know, drunken people in the street, because you need to fight people who are going to strike, try to strike you with natural blows. Right. right, and then I that that kind of when when I read that, my mind instantly went back to Morazzo, and where Morazzo is always like, they can give you a mandrito, a reverso, or a stoccata, and they're gonna give you a mandrito, right? It's like these these you know, it's almost like there's a lot of emphasis and a lot of treatment in terms of how to move when it comes to wide play actions, you know, kind of bring this back to sword and small buckler, but really everything that you're doing from that range outside of what might be some sort of, 
I've found in some ways what feel like some of these like hidden actions that might be like hidden ideas of defense that you're doing as you're going through some of the um, some of the flourishes and, and uh, embellishments. But that's an aside. But I, I guess it just feels like yeah that here are the natural blows right. It's super easy. Like I even even when I read Fiore, I get the same sense of here's the natural blows you can give. You know, you you have your seven you have your seven blows. All of them are relatively natural, as long as they're going through the lines that they should be going through. And then you get all of his masters, and it's like when you get into the masters, you're like, oh, okay, now we're actually getting into the real art of what Fiore mm -hmm. is trying to teach. But you know, all we really get in terms of how to deliver the individual blows is here's a segno. Right, and that's the thing I also earlier when I commented on. Um, uh, the multi-intention nature of the Bolognese and said, you know, it seems to be a system that gets that earlier. And then I corrected myself and said, well, actually, that's what they just present in their books. We don't actually really know whether they, you know, we have some sense maybe from Marozzo's commentary about how long he says people should spend cutting um, uh, before they, they, you know, so that suggests that there's some basics time of, right. you know, just spending time cutting. Um, uh, and uh, but we don't always you know it's hard to know how much time you know how much how versed people are in the natural blows or in the the system that comes before what's put down in the manuals right um, because the manuals are often showing us um, uh, showing us about the special moments the moments that where the magic is where it takes a lot more study to 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 get good and I, I sometimes feel like actually that I don't feel like the HEMA world is necessarily a historical I think that it's just uh, very biased. Actually, it may not even be ahistorical in how it's biased. Meaning, most people out on the street, I think, in in the time of these people, were just whacking at you with the 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 things that yeah. they found worked, and with a lot of natural blows. And some people figured out some natural blows and some good tricks. Like that's yeah. that's I think that's actually quite historical. And you know, all of these historical masters spend their time railing against people not doing proper. You know, not not doing uh, La Verde de Teresa. Um, you know, they're they're right. railing against people fighting in vulgar ways, and they're complaining about people fighting with overly long swords, and they're complaining about people uh, relying just on speed and physical attributes. And you know, it's all the same Sounds stuff that similar. we complain about. It's quite the the environment's very historical. <laughs> so one of the things I was always thinking is, so you were mentioning about how you know sticks were sort of omnipresent in the area, and I was kind of thinking that. They actually, boys, being boys, probably grew up fighting with sticks. I mean, I don't know any boys that didn't. And I imagine yeah. at that time, without video games, they really would have been doing it because they had nothing better to do. And that I was always interested how um, the sword and small buckler material was almost like taking somebody who knows how to fight with sticks and introducing them to the magic of swords once you have edges colliding and how you can use, how you can basically develop thrusts with advantage and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think like, like right off of sticks. Right. Right. Yeah. You've already been doing a lot of kind of Joko Largo actions with your right, sticks. Right. Right. So you kind of so already now, have that. Yeah. And then maybe that's you know, how that's, they take that to Menta Spada. Where right. it gets more and more magical, as you say. Right. And and do you actually then also say, you know, is there is there also kind of a class distinction there too that um uh, that you know the magic is really in Jogo Stretto with with real swords, not with swords. right. <laughs> You're right. You know, like is, is that actually why I'm saying right. the magic is there? Go back and play with your sticks, Giuseppe. <laughs> right. <exactly. laughs> uh, all right. So 
Um, so we're really interested in Sword and Small Buckler this month uh, because our October episode, we're looking at the duel, uh, the beginning of the duel between two famous Bolognese warriors, Guido Rangoni, who we mentioned before, mm-hmm. and Hugo Popoli. We also know that they're the same age and were probably fighting with Sword and Small Buckler as boys. Uh, we know that Guido was short and that Hugo was tall. How might these two fencers have approached the fight differently and can you think of any specific attacks from the Bolognese cannon or system that would have been suitable for either one? I know that's now we know kind of also that Guido question. was like a ferocious uh, guy. So yeah, he was towering that. in valor, if not in yeah. height. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, uh, so I, I certainly, I feel like uh, one thing from from you know what I've read about him is that he certainly uh, uh, made up. And I think that's something, you know, the making up for your stature with your presence. Right. Um, I think is an important quality of uh, uh, to bring to that that okay. fight. So when you think just, if we, you know, we've talked about the smaller, sh- the, the taller and shorter fighters right. idea already here. Right. I think there's a whole other side here, which is, and I think this is something that gets talked about. And I feel like it's a part of kind of Guido is how do you dominate that fight psychologically? How do you make the tall fighter into a shrinking violet? Got um, it. All right. Well, let's and, let's and look at that. Them, yeah. How do you, you do know, that? You know, have them, uh, and you know, I think, and I think that's something that is in the Bolognese kind of um, corpus as well, uh, and it's talked about in the like. I think that idea is talked about in the Italian tradition, both in the sense of. Um, like the introductions to the plays, you know, coming out, showing, you know, an embellishment, that's part of presence, bringing presence into the fight. It's right. part of a way I see that as a tool. I see there's a lot of different tools there, but one of them is how do you bring and dominate this situation before you even enter it? How right. do you hide your intention about when you're going to enter it and how? Um, but there's also the other place where it's talked about is in commentary on like the bestial man. So, you know, the bestial man is also the person who is trying to take on the airs of of that I have a dominant presence. They're doing right. the they're doing the embellishment, but they don't the, the the secret is that they don't have any technique at all. They're only the bestial and not the skilled person. Right. Uh, but I don't you know, I think that the you know, so Guido Rangoni, I think his you know, the, the main thing that that he would do and you know, and I think is important is he did a lot to control that space psychologically before he entered it, okay. tried to be the person with the greater presence. And I think that there is a real power there in against somebody who's maybe could be outstatured by the other person is to, you know, use your embellishment, use your your make the other person really believe that you're going to end them uh, and that your the power of your blows are going to be something that they will need to really put their body up to withstand. Um, and then when you enter, come with a greater degree of finesse than they're expecting. So enter. So basically do your embellishments with an attitude. So come in, bang in your, bang in your buckler, like making them think that you're going to do that to their face. Right. It could be that. And I, I think that there's lots of ways that one can come in with attitude and, uh, sometimes people come in, you can come in with attitude just by how you carry your body and how resolutely you enter towards the engagement. Okay. Um, and so if you come very resolutely and very strongly towards engagement, that can create one thing. If you come with powerful blows within your embellishment, and I don't think you may, you're not making it look like I'm just doing a little, like I think one thing that happens with modern practitioners is they do something that kind of looks like a little, a little show, right. a little show. And yeah. now I've arrived and here we do this as opposed to I am, I am just beginning the violence immediately. 
Right. And I am now bringing the violence to you. Right. And so when I embody that I'm coming this with all of this violence, this wave is building and is going to crash onto you. And I think that the powerful thing there is the bestial man has only that. They don't even want to enter. They want to resolve the situation only with their presence. Um, whereas the, the skilled swordsman comes with that degree of presence, but then they pick their moment that they enter very, very well. They don't just go for the violent blow right away. They've maybe created the impression that they're going to end you as soon as they enter their measure, they're going to hit you. So Guido's going to come in appearing to to take and occupy that space. Like he's just going to leap across that distance and okay. and strike um, uh, strike Hugo with with a you know single game ending blow. But then instead he makes an attack to miss, a feint that then comes back to the sword and then he makes his entry. So I think he's, that's part of also how you're not only disguising, you're not only using an introduction embellishment to disguise um, when you're going to attack, you're also using it or to how you're going to attack. You're using it to disguise even the intention of the nature of, of, of what your attacks will be like at all. Okay. Got it. So you kind of, yeah, that makes sense. All right. Now, I think Hugo, so when you're dealing with somebody who comes with a tremendous... Now, I've just set up this scenario, so imagine... And I think this is something that we encounter in a HEMA space, too. I certainly have a lot of students who say, who go out and they meet somebody who's coming with a lot more bestiality or a lot more violence um, than, than they bring, than they in their in their spirit bring certainly one way we can train ourselves to try to match that that level of presence with our own and i think that there's benefit to doing that so you know hugo could choose to see if he can come and this is a very italian feeling a lot of ways to see if he in fact has an even greater presence than guido does and they can come and both build their their tidal waves toward one another and then it is you know really comes down to um who can deceive the other to cross the distance in the time that is not expected and take advantage of that scenario. Okay. So there is one way of doing that is I come with that same violence and then I'm just trying, or, or, you know, a lot of HEMA tournaments, people come with equal violence and they both enter as hard as they possibly can. <laughs> both of them hoping that they're the harder one of the other. Yeah, um, never seen that and before. I, <laughs> and we know there's commentary of a lot of Italian duels that that was how they, that many Italians did enter against each other in that way. Just they both trying to be dominant. levels of violence, and they both struck each other. And you know, there's both. lots of duels where people got hit and got stabbed it. and cut many, many times because they clearly were coming with that that same idea. Okay. Um, but All I think right. the smarter approach, you know, I would advise Hugo to maybe to maybe come with some 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 um, degree of of feeling of the the meeting, um, but then seek to kind of tease the edge of that measure. You know, fake his entry into that measure. Try to cue uh, Guido to 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 come uh, violently earlier than um, than he intends, um, and to try to out you know keep that distance and outfence him um, uh, just on on kind of magic managing his space. But he has to manage his space while keeping his body still forward. I think that the risk is to is to. Sh- to, to cower away, to, right. to yield away. And so he's gone. The other thing I often recommend is um, I would say, you know, Hugo should should probably take as much ground as he can as early as possible in the fight so that he gives himself more space to maximize the advantage of reach. Cool. Yeah, that sounds like a 
great breakdown. I'm, I'm picturing lots of Montante from uh, <laughs> lo- from Hugo. Lots of big old whirling blows. It makes it look like he's going to enter with a Montante thrust, but then he turns it back up to Guardia Alta, trying to lure Guido in. And Guido, that that sort of makes sense. Like he's trying to steal that distance, kind of like you're saying, but also intimidate him so that he thinks mm-hmm. he's going to be clumsy and desperate. Mm-hmm. And I think it's. It is when we choose to receive someone um, in fighting, we need to make sure that there's still a forward presence to our reception. I think right. the thing that sometimes happens when people are allowing the fight to come to them, which isn't a bad idea, is that they allow too much. They retire too much. And so then they, then they actually really are behind on that initiative. Whereas when we're going to receive in a fight, we're actually coming with the intention of stealing. And right. stealing is a very active an aggressive mindset analogy it just it just creates the impression of reception um but it is a type of counter aggression right yeah like we're going to hit them we're just going to let them extend their sword first so we can set it aside when we hit them right one thing i do to help myself and i I give this trick to my students too when i'm going to be working in a more receptive oriented place i imagine even if i'm going to wait for them to come to me i imagine that i am moving forward still the reason the distance is collapsing is i'm moving forward Uh, it just happens to be that their legs are propelling that collapse of distance but i'm still the one controlling it i'm still the agent of that distance collapse nice yeah i think you know so Bringing this back to Manchiolino again, my muse here. Um, it, you know, he, he speaks of defending going forward, and mm-hmm. for a while that was always something that was very puzzling to me. But then, as I started to really study his sword and small buckler material, really started to look at his mezzospada techniques and everything like that, it started to click to me a little bit that that's really what his intention was, right? So you talked about stealing, and I almost feel like that's where those mezzospada techniques really, really start to shine. Is where you can you know, you, you would you take the initial one or two blows that come from your opponent as if you were reading Manchiolino's book one, where you might get one a first or second intention attack. But mm. then on that second intention attack, if you can catch with good defense, then you can naturally transition into the mezzospada techniques and, and really take somebody out. And a lot of times it's because you're working around their person. You're either getting to their outside or their inside line in a way where you can sort of you know express your dominance. And I see that a lot with, um, you know, kind of bring this back to the, the sharp discussion with his book four when he's doing sword and large buckler that's how i actually see those progressions really start to play out you're giving one or two defenses where you're taking care of that initial thrust you're taking care of the fact that they've tried to bring their sword back online with a cut of some kind or perhaps they've attacked a low target and then you're instantly transitioning once you've kind of regained control or at least you've it's the moment to steal the initiative back then you're transitioning back into something that starts to transition into uh, what, at least from my perspective, I start to see is looking a lot more like Mezzospada. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and when you're getting the space, we're also getting into mezzo tempo, you know, which is one of the kind of earliest types of tempo that's mentioned by Italian people like Manchilino. This idea of hitting people in in the middle, in the middle um, yeah. of their of their actions, and that's something that we you get a lot. Well, there's ways you get that in Gioco Largo and open and wide play, but you don't force it. The opponent has to give it to you. Um, whereas, uh, or at least not as easily do force it. Whereas when you get into Joko Strato Elemento Spada, now I'm cre- I can 
obstruct my opponent. I can stringure my opponent in a way that forces them to move in larger action. And then I can take those larger movements with half actions. Um, and so that's something that we ideally all, you know, like that's something that Italian fencing tends to kind of starts to move quite sharply towards is this idea of trying to get into these narrow measures where you have control and you can strike your opponent a mess of tempo. Yeah, I see that with his like his his core of defense as well too. You know, like uh, I kind of I've started to see Manchiolino's like defensive box being his obviously a falso from Porta de Ferro strata, right? So you're you're raising up into Gordia de Faccia, either that or you're going into Gordia de Testa, and then you know Gordia de Testa naturally leads to that mezzo which covers that inside line, and you can transition between those three specific guards going between those actions, right? Like you think about his uh, sword alone plays, a parry, mm-hmm. a, that false edge parry that goes up into Gordia de Faccia, and then the Mandrito comes, you go into Gordia de Testa to make the parry so that way you can cut the Mandrito back across the arms. You know, it's it's like he's got this little tight box that he likes to work from that he then explores and it's usually starting to work on the outsides and, and working around. Yeah, the single sword plays are hit. That's where he has that that kind of universal parry yeah. paradigm that's in the in that shows up a lot. And that is the idea there is to stringure your opponent into this very narrow set of options, so that your actions yeah. are 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 and you are going to be moving towards mezzo tempo uh, if you get close enough, um, just by virtue. And that's a, again back to that. You know, why is the art in the Joko Stretto alla Mezza Spada, part of that is because you need to be able to see the smaller tempos and be able to act in those smaller tempos. And that takes a lot of, um, of ability. All right, I think are we, we got Sword and Buckler down, huh? I think so. Yeah, that was a great discussion. Yeah, it was a pleasure. That concludes another episode of Le Arte d'Arme, the Bolognese podcast. I want to thank Devin Borman again for coming on and sharing his wisdom with Bound Sword and Small Buckler. In the next episode of Le Arte d'Arme, we're going to learn all about side sword manufacturers. Have you ever wondered how your side sword ranks in terms of the pantheon of side swords available? Well, this will be the episode to find out, at least from Stephen and I's perspective. It's a little subjective, of course, as all things are and uh, we hope you enjoy it. After that, we're going to be doing episode two of Maestro Wars, and we're going to find out what happens in the epic of Guido Rangone and Ugo Papole. So stay tuned for that, and stay saucy, my friends. Mm -hmm.